right now I'd like to die because I am tired of fighting this. I, it's not about disappearing right now. Like today, I just, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of fighting with Victoria. I'm tired of fighting a completely and utterly broken mental health system. Mm. I'm tired of living with my reality. I'm just tired of it. I don't have the energy to keep going. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. Huge thanks to everyone who's joined me here on the podcast since we launched in July of 2020 and to everyone who listens. We really do appreciate it. And if you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. Other ways you can help, if you'd like, let people know about the podcast. It really does help spread the word. And of course, rating and reviewing on Apple does something with their magic algorithm that also helps. And there are a couple of ways you can make a financial contribution if that is your thing however you support we really do appreciate it again and do keep in mind that we are talking about suicide on this podcast as the title suggests may not be a good fit for everybody so take that into account before you listen but i do hope you listen because there is so much to learn today i am talking with ashley ashley lives up in new brunswick canada and she is a suicide attempt survivor How's it going? Ashley. Good, how are you? How am I? (laughs) I always feel a little bit better, as strange as this might sound, when I speak with people about this topic, which is strange, right? Dark. (laughs) It's not strange. I don't think it is. Right. Well, we don't because we're the the other ones. (laughs) We're not like the others, maybe. True. (laughs) Um, Where are you, if you want to share? Where do you live? I'm in New Brunswick, Canada. Ooh, all right. Not my first yeah. Canadian, but my first New Brunswickian. We first connected, I think, via Facebook. Yeah. Not that that really matters how <laughs> we connected. I am always curious. As I've done this podcast more and had these conversations, I noticed that a couple of questions I've started asking more and more is how did you come to learn of this podcast actually, and, and ultimately reach out? Yeah. I found out because... You recently did one with my friend who I met in treatment. <laughs> so she, they had sent it to me. And when they sent it to me, I thought, you know, I'm going to reach out and just see. And then I kind of read a little bit more and I was like, you know what? I kind of want to do that. So yeah. Yeah. Otherwise I probably wouldn't have found you because I normally don't listen to podcasts. I just don't have the attention span normally. So but when I listened to theirs and when I heard more about it, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do that. So I reached out. So, yeah, it wasn't a lot of thought processing. Right. Really. Well, I'm obviously I'm, I'm super glad you reached out. I don't share a lot of my story to people. There's reasons why it's just I'll be honest. I come from a really abusive family, but my dad has a very how to word this, but he refuses to admit that there's 
any possibility that anything could ever be wrong with me. And not because he doesn't want something to be wrong with his daughter, but because of the view that it would give other people. Mm. So I feel like I have to hide a lot of what I'm feeling. So when Mm. I thought, you know, this is kind of a way to share, but at the same time, kind of a way to be not seen, you know what I mean? Does he know that you're talking to me? No. Will he I know have on and off contact with my family right now. We are off. So yeah, yeah I, I can understand that. I feel <laughs> you on that one. Um, how many people know that Ashley in New Brunswick is talking to Sean in North Carolina today? Two people. <laughs> one of them is on the call and one of them is your friend, right? Uh, actually, my friend does not know. I did not tell them. I don't know why I didn't tell them. I I don't know. No judgments at all. I'm just um, I told one friend that I just, I know from online. And then I told an aunt that I was doing it. She was pretty supportive. Like I wasn't expecting much of a response because she usually doesn't give me much of a response, but she knows that I, I'm open to it with certain people like talking about it. But at the same time, there's other people where I just don't even, I just pretend like I'm perfectly normal and that's not the word I want to use but it's the only word I can think of so no, yeah sure I understand yeah you know it's interesting uh, and this isn't about me I just notice as I've dealt with my own things that there are mm-hmm. fewer, and fewer people like I can literally create and do this whole thing right so mm-hmm. a lot of people hear it not a lot a lot but mm-hmm. some but there's so few people that I'll talk to about my own that know your actual story it's more now like where I'm like I don't get so angry with them, but it's more like I'll say, we're not having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's just not pretend that you're going to give me some real attention. here. Exactly. You're yeah. Just I just, so let's just not pretend. And that's cool. Yeah. We can talk about baseball. No worries, man. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's kind of changed in the last couple of years. I have a fairly new diagnosis to myself in the last couple of years. So before I think I used to be a little bit more open, but now I'm a little bit more on the side, like people knew that something was going on before, but didn't know to the extent. But now I find I'm a little bit more hesitant to say things because of this new diagnosis. There's a lot of controversy with it. So I feel like it complicates things. And sometimes I just, I don't say it because of that. Cause I just don't want people to think differently of me, even though it's something that's been there my whole life. So it doesn't mm-hmm. change it, but putting a name to it is going to change things. You know, I got two guesses. So, you ready? Yeah. The diagnosis. Yeah. Because the, the way you said it. I don't know if you'll guess it. I probably won't. I probably won't. But two <laughs> two things that have come up lately, I feel like not, I don't know if it's more often, but borderline or, or uh, CPTSD? No. What is it? What do we got? I was originally diagnosed with borderline personality disorder in the fall of 2012. Um, saw the psychiatrist once never saw him again. They simply wanted a diagnosis so that they could put me in DBT because without it here, you don't get anything. So it was either get the diagnosis and be able to do the group or don't get the diagnosis and we're never going to see you again. So I was given the diagnosis. I was given the diagnosis at that point because that's what they thought was wrong. And that's what they knew was going to get me some treatment if I had that diagnosis. Mm. So years went on and then about Oscar stopped. Sorry. <laughs> Oscar is Ashley's cat, if you're yes. not, not her partner. <laughs> so about three and a half years ago, I kind of was in and out of the system as far as mental health stuff, um, seeing a psychiatrist kind of on medication and things were kind of just 
I wasn't getting anywhere. Nothing was helping. Um, it was just kind of in and out of the system. I really wasn't seeing a counselor. I wasn't making any progress. I felt like crap all the time. It was just, it was really shitty to be honest. About three and a half years ago, I started seeing um, a therapist that I had seen for the first time in 2011, who I had seen for a couple of years. And then we kind of disconnected because I left where she was working at the time. She was working at the university. And once I left the university, I couldn't continue to see her, but we kind of, we had kind of made a relationship. So we kind of kept in touch. We had to email her every once in a while. She had answered back. We kind of communicate that way. About three and a half years ago, I reconnected with her, started seeing her again. I, at that time, wasn't on any medication. I wasn't seeing a psychiatrist. I had no follow-up at all. I had nothing. Um, I was doing really bad. I was living at home at the time. Things were really, really bad. To make a long story short, she... My family doctor would not send me to a new psychiatrist. I was on the wait list for a new one. She said, look, she talked to my family doctor and she said, look, if we don't do something now, she's not going to be alive soon. We've got to do something. So she basically demanded that I be referred to the psychiatrist that I see now, who actually is a psychiatrist who gave me my original diagnosis of borderline back in 2012. So I started seeing him. I started seeing him on a weekly basis. Things were kind of leveling out a little bit. And then with some things and other things, I was doing really bad. I was also in, when I was diagnosed with the borderline, I was also diagnosed with an eating disorder. So mm. that was just something that happened in my life. That was just reality. And that, that diagnosis didn't impact me at all. Cause I knew it was there. You know what I mean? So when I started seeing him, my eating disorder was completely out of control. I was not really eating much. I, if I did eat, I wasn't keeping it down. Um, I was just, I was in a really, really bad place. So that was December of that year. I think it was 2018 if I remember, or 2019. I can't remember. We decided within only a month or two of me going back to see him that there wasn't a whole lot here we could do in New Brunswick as far as the eating disorder. There's no there's no eating disorder treatment here. We are the most underfunded province when it comes to mental health stuff here. The closest would be Halifax in Nova Scotia. Their program isn't great. So the next closest is Ontario, which is actually where I met that friend. <laughs> so mm. in order to go, I needed funding and I I couldn't afford it myself. So I didn't, I don't have insurance and it wasn't, it was a private place. So it's not funded through the government. So we kind of, we went to the New Brunswick whatever you would call it, health board, I don't know. Anyways, we went to them and basically stated the case. Um, The psychiatrist basically said, look, if we don't do something, there's no, she's got no quality of life and we need to do something. And if we don't do something, she's going to end up like, this is going to be what's going to kill her. The eating disorder. Yeah. So we went through that process. They ended up deciding they were going to fund this program in Ontario. So then I applied to the program, got accepted, went to the program in June of 2019, I think it was, is when Mm -hmm. I started. Mm -hmm. Finished that fall. At that time, still had the diagnosis of borderline, as far as I knew. Actually, slightly before that, my doctor, psychiatrist, had kind of added on that complex PTSD disorder. Um, I know what I'm talking about here. But it's changed. (laughs) Well, we're going to get, you said long story short, what is the damn diagnosis? So the end diagnosis now is disassociative identity disorder. There is not a single piece of paper in my file, except for years ago now, that says that I have borderline. So wait, DID used to be called something else, right? Multiple personality disorder. Do you think it's an accurate diagnosis? I agree. 
And I've mm. seen a specialist in Montreal to have a final diagnosis on it, final confirmation. That can be really, whew, I mean, none of these, these conditions are, are easy. Of course, I'm not comparing yeah. that sounds to me and I don't know much like it can be. Wow. Yeah. It's terrifying. I'll be honest. There's 28 different parts. I don't use the word alters. I don't like that. You'll notice that there's 28 different parts in my head. And when I go to bed at night, I don't know who I'm going to wake up with in the morning. You know what I mean? Um, I, you I know have- what? Actually, Ashley, I don't. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what you mean. I mean, I can listen to you. I don't know anything about that. It's just, it's a very complicated, it's a very complex disorder. There's not really much treatment out there for it. We had considered when I was diagnosed with it, that I would go back to inpatient treatment to Mm -hmm. a specific trauma unit, but the closest is back to where I went for my eating disorder trauma or um, a place in the States in Maryland. And wait, hang on, Ashley. Nobody yeah. says Maryland. <laughs> you say it. It's not how you say it. I know it sounds like it looks like Maryland or Mary's it's Maryland, Maryland. There you go. Anyway. So I was either going to go there or back to Ontario and Ontario wouldn't take me. We kind of decided financially I wasn't able to go to the States. So it wasn't an option. All right. So let me, let me try to like pull some stuff out from this. if mm-hmm. I Cause I know from your point of view, it's probably challenging. You know, you were joking, half joking, saying long story short, but it's really <laughs> hard to make these stories short. One of the things that I know about DID, a lot of it st- tends to stem from abuse that I know. for yes. sure. It's ch- early childhood trauma that causes it. And it's typically before the age of nine. Okay. Um, ongoing trauma. I might ask a question or two that might feel a little insensitive, but it's not. No, it's book. okay. No, it's fine. It's fine. When you, you, you are Ashley, you know, I'll say Ashley in Canada, I'm speaking with Ashley. Like if we were talking an hour from now or tomorrow, mm-hmm. might you be go by another name? In my mind? Yes. Mm. People verbally. And if they don't really know me, then to everyone, I go by Ashley. That's just kind of, but in my mind and when I'm in my, like with, a, with my therapist or my psychiatrist, they will pick up on who it is based on what's happening, like what's being expressed, what's being said and kind of stuff. I'll be honest with you right now. This isn't Ashley speaking with you, but. All right. Who is it? My name that I actually go by in my head is actually nobody. That's the name. Literally. Yeah. Nobody. Okay. Can we continue talking? Is that cool? No, that's fine. No, I'm no, I'm good. I I, I trust that you are going to I will tell you if it's too much. You will, you'll yeah. also notice if it gets too much for me, I will tell you, but yeah. Cause I haven't, I haven't, I don't, I've probably spoken with people who deal with this, but it wasn't as you know open. They weren't necessarily. Yeah. So I just want to make sure not knowing much about this condition, mm-hmm. that the person talking is the person who agrees to let yes, me. Yes. No, you know, there's only they, one uh, person I, in this head right now that doesn't agree with this, but her opinion doesn't really matter half the time because she's kind of an idiot. So I got you. I mean, her opinion matters. I shouldn't say that, but it just, mm. yeah, you know what I mean at this time. So are you, are you in your twenties? I'm 28. Okay. Yeah. So you had originally mentioned something about like the early 2010s and some of the diagnoses you're growing up in New Brunswick. You're dealing with some abuse mm-hmm. as a young kid. And I assume into your teenage years as yeah. you're in school and living life, how would you sort of characterize your pre-adult years? Like for me, when, when you first said that, if I'm answering it right, I feel like I would describe it as pure hell. 
Yeah, that's exactly how I would describe it. I mean, that's how I describe it every day. Like I, I mean, like, I feel like I'm still living hell, but that's part of, because I relive it every day in my head. So, you know, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and this sort of the lens of this podcast is around suicide. So in Mm -hmm. that, those young years, when I say young, I mean, under 18, I know, Mm -hmm. but obviously seven-year-old is very different than 17. Did you think about ending your life in those years? I remember a very distinct time in my life. I don't remember exactly how old I was. It was between three and five um, Mm -hmm. was probably the first time that I really, and it wasn't really thinking about dying. It was more, it was in a three to five year old range brain. You got to remember that. I just remember wanting to disappear. I just, Mm -hmm. I wanted it to stop and I didn't know how to make it stop. For me at that time, the only way that I, like looking back now, I would definitely say it was suicide thoughts in that time but I I, I'm three to five years old I don't understand that you know what I mean if you would have asked me at that time I would have said if I was open about it I would have said that I wanted to run away like I just wanted to go away I just I just needed it to stop so I just needed I just needed a way like that's how I would have explained it to you and as you're going through your life I mean does that feeling go away ever or are you always in a unfortunately no um, You're always wanting to run away. You're always wanting to not be. As I've gotten older, I've understood the idea of suicide, the un- idea of dying, the idea of just ending it all mm-hmm. as normal people do. Like as they grow up, they understand that idea a little bit more, whether they deal with it themselves or not. But the first time I really, I don't know if I probably thought about dying before then, but the first time I actually tried to do anything, I was 17 at the time. Mm. Um, it wasn't a serious attempt but serious enough to kind of surprise people that something was going on because a lot of people didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. Do you, as, as best you can remember, what's going on in your life at 17 where you go from life is really difficult to wanting to die, to, to, to um, making that choice that's just different. It's actually attempting. So I started university when I was 17. I had recently lost my grandfather a couple of years before that to cancer. He had battled for a year. It was a really hard year. My grandfather was a big part of my life because he was the one, when I was two days old, my mother decided she didn't want me. She couldn't raise me. So I went to live with my grandparents and I lived with them until I started kindergarten when I was four. It was a very on and off thing. Weekends, I'd kind of be home. Weeks, I'd be at my grandparents'. So when he got sick and when he died, that really hit me hard. So that was one of the things, the fact that I was starting university was really hard. And then the abuse at home was not ending. It was everything compiled together that just kind of, you know what I mean? Like I just, I just needed everything to end because everything was too much together. Yeah. Yeah. Did you try to overdose? My actually, my first attempt was actually, this is why I have a hard time saying it's an attempt sometimes because of this, but Mm -hmm. I self-harmed really bad. Um, Mm -hmm. I ended up cutting my wrist really bad. I wasn't admitted to the unit. I was let go the next day. I saw a mental health worker and they let me go home, which really wasn't the wisest thing to do. (laughs) So it just kind of, it's continue to spiral from there. Um, I've had several overdoses over the year. My most recent one was back in May. Okay. And unfortunately it was my most serious one. I was in a coma for three days. They didn't know if I was going to live. Doctors still don't know how I ended up coming out of it without any repercussions or consequences or anything like that. Yeah. Mm, So 17 attempt one, 
that's around if my math is correct around when you got those diagnoses that ultimately my original one yeah yeah and then you kind of they were not correct yeah what are your uh and i know these are sort of big questions that are okay. answered with one or two sentences <laughs> but what are the 20s like so you're, do you finish college for example i didn't end up finishing college actually i did three years my first year i did okay my second year i really struggled through it my therapist actually went on mat leave my second year, my whole second year. She went on the end of my first year, was gone my whole second year. And that kind of, that was really hard because I really trusted her. And she was kind of the first person in my life that I felt like I could tell like stuff that was going on at home. And I barely scratched the surface of stuff that was going on at home with her when I first started seeing her. So my third year, she ended up coming back. I, I wasn't angry with her, but I had a lot of it was just really hard to go back and trust her to the extent that I had trusted her in my first year. So mm -hmm. my third year, I ended up failing everything. I didn't pass a single course. Mm. I probably went to five classes out of the whole semester for each class. And, and what were you studying? I was doing a Bachelor of Arts and planning mm -hmm. to go on to be a teacher. That's what I was planning on. So I mm -hmm. did the three years technically. I mm -hmm. didn't end up... I don't even have half the credits for the three years right. because of how much I did. It sounds like, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong here, of course, it sounds like you don't have much support then or now. I don't. Family, I'm thinking about friends, I'm yeah. thinking about whatever. So going back to childhood, teenage years, even into college, are you trying to mostly tough this out on your own? Yeah, mm -hmm. there isn't a whole lot. Um, when I first started seeing that therapist, I had never... I had seen like the guidance counselor at school every once in a while, especially when my grandfather was sick as just kind of, and it wasn't even something that my parents didn't even know I was seeing her. Right. So I just, it was just, a, I had to hide it because I knew that if I, there'd be consequences for talking about anything. And I never, up until, up until I saw the therapist at the university, I had never once told anyone that something was going on at home. Which and when I even when I started seeing that therapist, I simply, like I said, I simply scratched the surface of things. Right. I still feel like I'm always scratching the surface at times because of stuff that has gone on. And so that includes you didn't tell anybody about the first attempt at 17 years old, presumably. The only one that knew kind of that that was going on to lead to that was my therapist, um, but not even to the extent that she would have to report because. I couldn't have my parents find out. Um, my parents did end up finding out because I kind of panicked and I told someone that I had tried and mm -hmm. they found me and took me to the hospital. That's how they found out. Yeah. How long did you stay in the hospital for? It was only overnight. That wasn't for like mental health. That was just. That was simply, I had tried to kill myself by self-harm and I went in, it was about midnight and I was released by 7 a.m. Okay. There again, I grew up in a really small town, not in the town I live in now. So the small town that I grew up in, there is no psych unit. So anybody that has any psychiatric things that presents at that hospital is transferred to the hospital of the town that I live in now. Mm. So had they done anything, which they wouldn't have, but had they done anything, I would have had to been transferred up here. Between 17 and May of last year, how many times have you attempted? It would be eight times in total. Okay. So this is a somewhat regular thing in your life. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 And, and again, this might be on the borderline of one of these in, insensitive questions. 
is it always you that's attempting as far as you know? That's a really good question because the thing is, is that nobody is normally like myself. Nobody is mm-hmm. normally the one that has been calling for help. Nobody's in, in, in the name of one of your. Yes. So yeah. nobody is normally the one that calls for help and stops it. So nobody is not usually the one that actually attempts. So the one that actually attempts, her name is Victoria. And she's, she has a lot of anger towards things and not that she hates anybody, but it's just something we're exploring right now in therapy. But just basically, she just, she doesn't know how to deal with anything. She's in her mind, she's 17. She's back at that age where her life has fallen apart. Her grandfather has just died. She's living in an extremely abusive home. Everything is falling apart. Mm-hmm. She's starting university. She's terrified. High school's ending. Like all of that is going on. It's a very traumatic time in her life. And that's just kind of, so her mind is still there. It's not, Victoria is not 28. She is 17. I struggle with that a lot because it's hard to see that something in my brain is still not mature as a 28 year old. It's still 17. Most of my attempts have been in the last, over the last about four years. Mm. And I can guarantee you looking back to May that it was Victoria that attempted and it was nobody that called the ambulance. Yeah. And I'm reminding the audience, nobody is one of your, what do we say? Not names, one of your selves. A lot of people use the word alters. I prefer the word parts, but Okay, sure. A lot of people use the word alters. That's kind of the more common name. Both are common, but alters is used more than parts. I just find alters a little degrading at times. So I don't know. I just don't like it. So how many people know that you have DID? My, I'm just trying to think my therapist, my psychiatrist, obviously, my grandmother, my aunt, and a handful of friends. That takes a lot of courage, though, to tell people that I would imagine that's a tough one, right? Yeah, it has that it still has a very negative stigma. A lot of people don't know about it. And when you say DID, like, I had a meeting with someone this morning, and I, they asked what my diagnosis was, it was, and I said, like, I said, dissociative identity disorder, and she had no idea what I was talking about. And unfortunately, like I know when like I've gone to the ER and stuff and they'll, what are your, what's your diagnosis? And you tell them and they look at you and even a lot of health professionals don't know. They, a lot of them know it by the old name, but still it has that negative connotation because of when you say multiple personalities, you kind of get looked Oh yeah. We think about a movie that we saw that's probably incredibly inaccurate. And exactly. So it's the last 10 to 11 years. Yeah eight attempts. How are you? And, and I, and I, and I legitimately, there are no judgments here. I'm just trying to mm-hmm. gauge your life or, or ask you questions. So to learn more, how are you living? How are you subsiding? How are you actually getting food in your mouth, paying rent? Are you working? Are you living with your, you know, what's, what's the life like in those, that decade? I am currently not working. I'm actually waiting for um, disability to come through. Mm. I was working up until May. I had been working there for three years. It was a vet clinic. Oh, cool. That I was working at. I loved it. Um, but I, I originally started working there. I ended up going back to school in the span of, in the last 10 years. Um, and I did complete that mm. diploma. I don't know how. I can't tell you that. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. I ended up finishing with a 96% average. That's awesome. Um, so. And that was kind of in a time where I was doing a little bit better. 
I, I honestly don't know how I managed because I wasn't even on a medication at that time. Sorry. Are you on meds now to help with things? Yes. Unfortunately, there is no medication for DID. That right. Some... Yeah. Right. And that's the thing. The medication yeah. can treat the kind of symptoms of DID in some stances, right. but a lot of people have a lot of issues with it because the thing is, is you can have some parts that respond to medication and other parts that don't. That's mm. the problem. Like Victoria doesn't respond to any medication. Yeah, man. Oh, so, so the way we've kind of dealt with Victoria in my mind is I'm on one of my medications as Abilify. Mm. And I find Abilify kind of simmers Victoria down a little bit to the point where she's not that she's unconscious, but you know what I mean? It just kind of simmers mm. her down to a couple notches that I can manage a little bit more. Whereas just after I attempted in May, I was off all of my medications because I that's what I had overdosed on. So my doctor didn't feel comfortable with me having any medications. So when I was off the Abilify, I was completely out of control. And finally, when we got to the point where he could trust me with them again, going back on them has kind of helped summer her down a little bit more. You said specifically 28 parts. Mm -hmm. How do you know? (laughs) I'll tell you this. So I don't know how much you know about DID, but basically the word that they use when someone is kind of showing up or there is fronting. So for me, not all of those 28 parts front. Mm. Some parts are literally just in my head. Some of them, I don't even know their names. For me, the main parts that would front are, I have three, well, four kind of main parts that front. And that's Mm. really, we kind of cycle through those, but the other ones kind of just, they talk in amongst themselves in my head, but they don't verbalize things to people on the outside. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. So. No, I mean, it's as much as it's going to make sense. <laughs> yeah. right. I mean, it's not going to. Got it. Okay. All right. Did you continue to try when you would attempt to end your life in your late teens, 20s, the same way or your methods change? Changed. Definitely. Change. I used to be a lot of self-harm in the fact that I was cutting really deep and I tried to do it that way. In the last four years where the most of the attempts have happened has been with pills. I can tell you that if I was to attempt now, I do have a different way that I would do it. And I'm assuming that it's because this is more likely to work. That's a definite. um, We don't have to name it. It's all up to you, of course. There's there's only a bridge here, basically. And if you jump over this bridge, no one has ever survived jumping over this bridge. It falls into it, goes into a body of water. That's the thing is it's not going to, I'm not going to survive it. But the other thing is, is that if I did attempt now... Mm-hmm. And I used my pills mm-hmm. and I survived. I have no chance of getting my pills ever back. So, so I would have to live with no pills. Your Nothing. quality of life would be reduced. Exactly. A weird, tragic irony there. My uh, psychiatrist is a little odd at times. <laughs> he has very odd logics. I don't agree mm-hmm. with him on a lot of stuff sometimes. So you can't get the pills back that are helping your life because you might take all of them to, in an attempt. Again, yes. Oh, wow. Last May was, was that the most serious one you said, right? Yeah. So were you hospitalized for that? Yes. How long were you there for? Three weeks in total. That was actually my, my longest stay outside of being at Homewood in Ontario, which was four months. My longest stay here has been six weeks, but I was only in there for three weeks this last time. I had begged him to let me go home because of stuff that was going on on the unit that I just couldn't handle. So I begged and pleaded to go home, (laughs) told him I was fine. And then I got in trouble for that. So, so the, so the three weeks wasn't helpful. No, I I mean, I mean, you didn't kill yourself. That's what they want. That's the thing. I, yeah, 
it was helpful in the fact that it kept me safe for a little bit. Right. Would I say in general on the big scheme of things that being in the hospital is helpful? Yes, because the thing is, is Victoria doesn't act out when she's in the hospital. Mm. Because if she acts out in front of people, it would get us in trouble. Because of the fact that a lot of the times when she's acting out is that she's very angry with others. Like I've been through the hospital so many times that I've lost count. But a lot of like the time when I go in is because Victoria's like things are really bad with her and it's trying to stop another attempt. It sounds exhausting. It is. It's very tiring. Um, and that's kind of where I've, I literally wrote an email to my psychiatrist and therapist this morning that I'm just right now I'd like to die because I am tired of fighting this. I, it's not about disappearing right now. Like today, I just, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of fighting with Victoria. I'm tired of fighting a completely and utterly broken mental health system. Mm. I'm tired of living with my reality. I'm just tired of it. Um, I don't have the energy to keep going. Yeah. Who would take care of your cat, Oscar? I actually have two cats and a dog. <laughs> and how I logic that in my brain is that they'd be better off without me. Mm. And if I were to ask you how you think certain people, like say in your family might respond, do you think they would feel similarly? Um, my grandmother and my aunt, yes. I do think they'd be better off without me. Do you think when you say something around your aunt and your grandma, right? Grandma? Mm -hmm. Is that I'm a burden, so they're better off without me, or is it something else? Yeah, I would say it's more of a burden thought. Just I feel like I cause a lot of so just to make sense of it, my dad sexually abused me since I was a young child, since I was three. That grandmother is my dad's mom. So I feel like in the stuff that was going on at home coming out has made it really hard for my grandmother to even look at me sometimes because she has to face the reality that that's her son that's done that. That's why I feel like it's more of a burden thing. Does that make sense? A little yeah, bit. It feels, like an it feels like an impossible situation to reconcile. Yeah. yeah. That you can't do it. Yeah. I'm not sick. I'm not. Yeah. It sounds as if there's nowhere to go. Yeah. And that's literally how I feel. I just don't feel like that's, I just feel like in my mind, I don't see any other option than that bridge a lot of the time. Like, I'll be honest with you. The police were here last night. I had a wellness check. I almost went to the hospital last night. I almost had to cancel this because of that. Yeah. yeah. So you're, so you're, 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 you're thinking about this regularly. Oh yeah. Do you think there's anything in, in talking about it? This is a broader question for people yeah. that, you know, I don't think talking about it ever increases the chances that someone's going to do it. No, I, no. I'm not reminding you of something you don't I, For me, I find to talk about it is a lot better than to not talk about it. Right. We kind of, me and my psychiatrist have an outstanding kind of rule, I guess you would say, is that if it needs to be said, it's to be said. Right. Because I do a lot better with someone knowing that I'm feeling like I want to die in that moment than mm -hmm. just trying to hide it. I don't think in the last three years that I've been seeing the psychiatrist again, that he's ever actually like without me consenting reported me wanting to kill myself. Yeah. It's just kind of, it's just a reality. It's a reality that I think about it all the time. And that's just kind of what it is. Yeah. I wanted to ask that question to you and others might answer it differently, but people that hear this, I want them to know, mm -hmm. I can't say this absolutely applies always. Mm -hmm. talking about it, mm -hmm. even getting somewhat specific or granular yeah. is not 
going to lead someone to do something they were because I will ask you questions and I have yeah rather personal rather specific yeah. and it's not changing your mind here no I want people to know uh, that like if you have somebody yeah. in your life and you ask them these questions I had a friend just a couple of weeks ago she was really struggling she it's a friend that I've met online she struggles with DIT as well she actually attempted oh, a week and a half ago Mm -hmm. and she reached out to me and yes I was struggling and in my own mind in my own mindset but her telling me that she was going to do it in that moment to be honest for me for myself and maybe not for anybody else but for me I kind of put aside my own feelings about it and in that moment I didn't know if she was going to live she lives in South Africa I had no way to find out if she was going to be okay and Mm -hmm. I kind of had to put everything aside for just a couple minutes just to kind of focus on her and the fact that she had just overdosed and just completely stopped answering. And I didn't hear anything for three days, whether she was alive or dead. Hmm. But did that in that moment, even though I was struggling myself, did that in that moment increase that or anything like that? Not at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You may have asked, you may have answered this already. So I, I might it's be okay. the May, the last May, less than a year ago, that attempt outside of medical professionals, who knows about that one? Is that the same group of small people, the family and friends? Um, my parents know about it. Um, okay. They ended up finding out. The question about DID. Yeah. Do you know, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here. And <laughs> the uh, suicide attempt and or completion rate for those that have been diagnosed suffer <laughs> from DID is probably quite high. I don't know numbers. Um, I was actually reading a book just about DID and stuff, and it was talking about just how high the rate is, but it didn't give a number, but how high the rate is with DID, with attempts or the thoughts of it or actually completing it. It would probably be fairly high. And you're thinking about it. You said regularly, when you think about it, are you thinking about, are you like visualizing going to that bridge and the whole? I'll be honest with you. I sit at that bridge quite often. I was going to ask um, you, when was the last yeah. time you were actually at the bridge? I, I was there last night. <laughs> Are you like feet dangling over the edge? Uh, not last night. So there's the bridge that everybody can drive over. And then there's the train bridge right beside it. The bridge that everyone can drive over obviously has a railing. Um, mm. The train bridge does not. I've been too scared to walk on the train bridge. But there was actually uh, somebody hit the railing on the bridge twice this winter and there's sections of the railing that were bent and that you could literally just sit and you would just fall off um and they just said on the radio yesterday that they were going to be replacing it this week so it's down to one lane so in my mind i have this idea that it would be perfect because then there's nothing blocking this week i can just there's no one there like i just it just made sense in my brain like i just that's what triggered a lot yesterday. Like I was really having a bad rough day anyways. And then when I heard that on the radio, I don't know, I just, it was, it was a messed up thought, but it just made more sense to do it then than to wait. How many people. And so I, I kind of think I know the answer here, mm-hmm. but I'll still ask, I mean, how many people know what you just told me? The two police officers that came last night, the mental health worker and the helpline. That's it. Were the cops cool? Unfortunately, most of them know me and know my story. Do they deal with you with kindness or are they jerks? It depends on the officer. I've had some very bad officers and I've had some very good officers. I've had 
officers scream at me. I've had officers tell me that I'm wasting their time. Mm. I and I understand it. It's a hard job for them to do. I mean, but screaming at me isn't helping. Telling me I'm wasting your time is not helping. Can I just say something? Something real quick. Yeah. It is. It is a hard job, and don't do it. You know it's a hard job. Don't mm. do it. If you can't do it, exactly. Sorry, sorry, not giving you a pass there. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Hard job and probably an underpaid job and and don't do it if you can't do the job. And I understand like a lot of them, I know for here, they're it's a very probably general statement but for here they do not receive enough mental health training. And I I know they are not mental health professionals. I get that. Right. But I'm sorry, but when I am feeling so bad and in such a bad place that I feel like my only option is to die. Yeah. I just like a little bit of respect. You know what I mean? Like I just, that's all I've wanted my whole entire life. Please. In that last, you don't know if tomorrow might be the last day that you see me or tonight might be the last day that you see me because tomorrow I'm not going to make that call. Right. So just in that last little bit, at least show some respect. And that's, that's a, big thing with me I just don't I have a really hard time when the police come because I don't know who I'm gonna get like I said a lot of them unfortunately know my story and unfortunately know me but for the most part most of them are pretty respectful but there has been Mm. a few that have really because of that because of those few I'll be honest I have a negative connotation with the police now because I feel like I'm burdening them I feel like I you know what I mean like I have a hard time when they show up now like before it was just it was just kind of something that happened, but now it's kind of like, I feel like they think I'm stupid and they feel like I'm just looking for attention. Cause that was the other thing that officer said is that I was just doing this for attention mm-hmm. and that, you know, it's just, yeah. So. And I also, and I, when it comes up hospitals and, and, and police, I tend to be, I tend to bash a little bit. I, I think most mm-hmm. of them are well-intentioned. With yeah, the yeah. education that they have the kind of support that they have behind the job most of them are well-intentioned and most of them do a, a good job with what they know. And right. I, I see that, but then you've got those few that are just absolute shit and they don't look past themselves to look at someone that's hurting. It tips over the apple cart for everyone else. You know what I mean? Like it just kind of puts a negative look on everyone else because of your one bad attitude. Mm. You had yeah. said something about, uh, you had just said something about not, it, it, someone suggesting that you wanted attention. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, one of the questions, I don't know if you've actually heard the podcast a lot, a little bit, asked, yeah. a little bit. Um, I ask this question often of, are there any myths that you want to call bullshit on? I imagine that's one of them, right? It's not about it. My biggest one would be the fact that this is not for attention. Right. I would do, and I would give anything to make my head stop. It right. is not because I want attention that I'm doing this. If right. I could make those 28 voices in my head stop, if that was all I could accomplish in life, that's all I would do. Mm. it's not because I want attention from someone else. I just want my head to stop. I just want some peace and quiet for once. I think I say that at every appointment that I go to my psychiatrist, and my therapist, as I just need some quiet. Mm. I just need to sit in silence for a few minutes. The fact that I'm looking for attention is not at all what it's doing. If attention was going to fix it, <laughs> it would have fixed it a long time ago, but that's not what I'm looking for. You know what I mean? I just, I don't know if that answers it, but yeah. yeah. So you never have two or three minutes of silence in your head. It's always active. It's always it's busy. always going. I right now in the last hour. Oh yeah, whether it's just one or two, 
it might be everyone kind of chattering um, mm-hmm. and, and not all the time. Is it negative all the time? No. Is it happy? No. But is it negative and like, let's, you need to die kind of thing every second? No, but noise alone for a lot of people, really noise, not outside, inside your head, but outside can bother a lot of people. But when it's in your head 24 seven, that's really overwhelming. That's the hardest thing for me. And I, to be honest, looking back when I was diagnosed with borderline, I used to, and even the therapist that I was seeing then and that I see now, she comments because I always used to say like, I just need my head to stop. I just need quiet. And nobody picked up on that to see Mm -hmm. what that was. It was just kind of, well, you just need to use skills. Like that's going to fix it. It's just, you have borderline. You just, just use your skills and that'll fix you. Take your medication. That'll fix you. But we're 10 years down the road. Well, almost 12 years down the road. And I'm sorry, but the skills haven't really done anything. Mm. You know, like the biggest thing for DID is talk therapy and talking out that trauma and talking out what's going on in your head. Like that's the biggest treatment for, for DID is talk therapy. But unfortunately with borderline 99% of the time, they stick you in a group with, for DBT. And that's what they tried to do with me. And that's why for years, I was just kind of lost in that system and lost in that gap because I had borderline stuck on me. Right. Does anything help? You said talking helps. Honestly, I haven't found anything that really consistently helps. Mm-hmm. I have times where something will help one day and doesn't help the next day, which is really hard because oh yeah, you don't know what, you know what I mean? Like you just, you don't know what's going to help to shut that off for a minute, you know? I just, I feel like I'm constantly on a roller coaster and it's just going in circles. You know, those Ferris wheels, but it's really, really fast. And it just doesn't stop. But I, I, I haven't found a way to stop that. So it's just a constant spin. The medication I'm on, I don't even know if it helps, to be honest, at some points. I mean, the Abilify does kind of simmer things down a little bit, but it still doesn't take anything away. I'm on an antidepressant. Guarantee that's not working. <laughs> I take medication for nightmares and to sleep. Um, but I'm, I'm terrified to sleep. So I keep myself up, um, because of the nightmares and then sleep, sleep deprivation is brutal. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're in this literally just in this constant, is your eating a little more stable than it had been right now? It's okay. It's not terrible. It's not great. I wouldn't say three meals a day don't exist in my world. Yeah. They just don't. I'm eating enough to kind of sustain, I guess, would be, that's kind of where it's at. So. Your birthday in the summer? December. In the December. winter. You'll be yeah. 29? Yeah. All right. Well, question. You going to make it? I don't think so. I don't want to. I don't want to do another year of this. I, I want to because I don't want to hurt my aunt and my grandmother, even though I feel like a burden to them, but I just don't want to continue to cause hurt. But I, I can't keep fighting my head. I can't keep this spinning going. Like I just, that's my biggest thing is I just can't, if I could find a way in the next, whatever amount of months that is nine months, Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if I could find a way to make my head stop spinning, sure. I'll do another year, but am I going to find that way? I don't think so. I'm, I'm not confident in that at all. I didn't think I was going to make it past last night. So do I think I'm going to make it to 29? (laughs) I don't know. I don't, Mm. I don't know. You don't know. 
I have no idea who hears this podcast. I'm going to assume that there's just at least a handful of people out there. Their stories overlap with yours some. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's people who hear this that uh, they have someone like you in their life. Mm-hmm. Super broad, sort of open-ended question. If they hear this, if they're listening, and Ashley in New Brunswick, what would you say to them? That's a tough one, I know. I think I'm going to say what I want someone to say to me, and that's that I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing for me, especially with struggling with DID. Like, there's just not sure I can find people on groups and stuff, but at the end of the day, in my life, like in my day to day life offline, right? Internet didn't exist. I don't know a darn person that has DID. You don't know, I don't know anybody that is going through this right now. Nobody in your area. I know my psychiatrist has told me that he has dealt with other people with DID. Couldn't tell you who they are. You can't go get a cup of coffee with them. Right. No, that would be my biggest thing is that you're not alone because I just, yeah. You kind of are, Ashley. I am. And they are. They're not alone. True. But understandably feeling alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know you have some friends that you've mentioned and that's the way you found this podcast, but is there somebody you have in your immediate area that you can go hug? No. Yeah. I I have in my, that I talk to, and this is very every once in a while kind of talk. I have two friends in the area. That's all I've got. And I mean, a lot of it is on my part. I have over the years, not push people away intentionally, but I I get it. I can be, Mm -hmm. sometimes I can be a little bit hard to deal with. And a lot of it is because the fluctuating between Mm -hmm. different parts. And I understand that, but I don't have a single friend left from high school. I don't talk to anybody from high school. My two friends actually that I do talk to are both people that I've met while while being admitted into the hospital. Actually, every person I talk to right now outside of professionals has all been because of some admission, every mm. single person. And that means that they're all people from the last three and a half, four years. I have nothing from before. And a lot of that, like when I ended up leaving home, I lost a lot of friends. My dad said some very terrible things about me to a lot of my friends. So a lot of them stopped talking to me because of that, because of the fact that they were scared of what he was going to say or what he was going to do. So none of my friends from high school talked to me. I used to be really active in this church um, that I used to go to. And I don't even feel comfortable walking in the church now because of it. Yeah. What's that church's view on uh, suicide? Scared to know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't do it. It's not a good thing to do. And you're going to end up in hell. Yeah. That's most churches view. But isn't that kind of how you feel about your existence now? Exactly. Yeah. We don't know if we're going to end up in heaven or hell. We don't know that. And not to get all religious on you, but we don't know if we're going to end up in heaven or hell. So if I'm living in hell already, and this is literally my logic, if I'm living in hell right now, and there's a slim chance, even just a 0.999% that I'm going to end up in heaven, that would be a little bit better than now. I want to take that chance. Yeah. I don't want to keep living in this hell. For some weird reason, that reminded me of a song from a musical. (laughs) I don't know which one. It's... (laughs) It's really bad timing on my half there. My behalf. Sorry. Uh, I didn't want to compare your life to a musical, but I mean, it could be worse. It could be a worse comparison. 
A uh, couple more questions and then I'm done. Yes. Uh, and I want to thank you, really thank you, because you've been so kind and open and honest and I'm glad we connected. When was the last time you talked to your dad? It's been a couple months. Yeah. This might be a little sensitive and you can tell me to go fuck myself if you want to. But uh, if he happens to stumble across this podcast and is listening to his daughter and makes it all the way to this point, uh, something you want to tell him? It's a hard question. Mm. I think the thing is, is that despite the hell that I've been put through, and this is something I struggle with every friggin' day, is that he's still my dad and I still, I still love him. That's why it's so hard to completely cut that tie because I still, and I don't even know if it's, it's not so much him that I want, but it's the idea of having an actual family that loves their daughter like they should. That's the biggest thing on why I keep going back because all I want is that. If I could, even if I had to deal with the voices in my head for the rest of my life, but I could have a family that cared about me and loved me, I think I'd take that, you know? Do you have, this is something I don't typically say. I I think I'm a little rough around the edges sometimes because you shared a lot and I didn't hold back. I asked them, asked some questions and that's what I do. And people can always say, I don't want to answer. You know, no, but here's the point. When we get off the call, you know, I know you've got that cute dog that I can see (laughs) and a couple of cats I know I have absolutely no power or influence, nor do I want it over the choices you make for yourself. I mean, are you, for lack of a better word, feeling kind of okay, safe? In the second, yes. But my one of my biggest issues is I night times are always harder. Actually, every attempt except the one in May has always been at night. I have a thing in my mind where I can't die during the day because someone might, especially with the fact that i I'm going to do it with a bridge this time. I can't do it during the day. So we'll just have to see how tonight goes, I guess. And I'm not saying that to put any blame on you. So don't feel that way because this didn't trigger anything in my mind. It's just. Well, you went there last night and you said talking about it doesn't make it worse or put ideas into your head. Yeah. I mean, my goal is definitely not that, but I'm also aware that I genuinely don't think anything I say or do is going to make a difference or at least lead someone to do that. Don't tell yourself you're not making a difference because just talking about it, having someone listen in the last hour has been more than someone's done for me in my whole entire life. Well, one, thank you. And it's an <laughs> honor and I appreciate that. Mm. You know what I think about when you say that more than anything else, how that's tragic. It's, it's just a sign of our culture, a culture mm-hmm. that emphasizes certain things and doesn't others. And um, this, I mean, it frustrates me to the hilt because, you know, if we say I had cancer right now, and this is not diminishing anybody or comparing anybody, but I'm just saying if I had cancer and we were sitting here and talking about it, it would be completely normalized. I sat distracting myself last night, watching this movie about this mother who had cancer and she was writing letters to her son. We can make a movie about that. And she was, they had done like a news thing on her and how she was dying from cancer. And we can normalize that and that's a normal thing but every day we are losing people to suicide and every day we are losing people because they're struggling with their mental health but yet we can't talk about it right yeah we instead and this is going a little out there far-fetched maybe but instead we go see a therapist and we talk behind a closed door and no i don't 
want to stand out on a street corner and tell someone my story right now. I'm not saying I'm going to do that because I'm not doing that. Guarantee that. Right. But to be able to know that I, if I wanted to do that, I could do that and not be judged. Or taken to a hospital immediately. Exactly. And I think when I, when you say that, what I hear also, it's something that kind of bothers me is I hear people talk about it. It's okay. We got to destigmatize this. But they're not doing anything about it to it's do okay that. okay to not be okay. And, but what you're, what, but, but in the moment in which, and, and I don't know what they're actually doing in these moments, but I have a pretty good sense mm-hmm. for some of them. When someone's actually coming to you to talk about it, are you just referring them to the 1 800 hotline or are you listening? 99% of the time, I get that. I get right. people telling me, just call the helpline. That's not, do you know what... how many actually, this is, this is something that really angers me. Do you know how many, and I don't know if this is like it in the States, but in Canada, I know of one helpline that you actually talk to a licensed counselor. That is it. All of our other helplines are like, they are paid for it, but they're like a volunteer mental health kind of nurse person that has just been trained to do that. Mm -hmm. A counselor is going to put a hell of a lot more into it than a frigging volunteer kind of person that's going to do that. I was, I was, I was a counselor for the crisis text hotline. Mm -hmm. I think that's available in Canada. Yeah. The training was minimal. My counselor, I love her to death, but there are times where she kind of says the wrong thing or she's not perfect. She's a human. And I get that. So not dissing her or anything, but there, there was a couple of weeks ago, I was really having a rough day and I reached out to her and I texted her and I said that I just really, I just need five minutes of your time. I don't even need to talk on the phone. I just need a response to a text. It's all I need because I just need to know that someone is there and someone thinks I exist for once. She was having a rough day. She was trying to get her kids to bed and it was just, it, the timing wasn't right. And I understand, but she said to me to call a helpline. And I just, I said back to her later, I said, I cannot, I cannot have you tell me to just call a helpline because it, yeah. yes, sometimes they help. And yes, they get me out of that crisis moment sometimes, but it's still, I almost find it dismissing of what I'm feeling and how it's just like, it's just. Like she accepts that I'm feeling that way, but there's just nothing she can do about it. And then I feel like there's nothing anybody can do to help. And then it's just, you know what? It's just, I go in a vicious cycle in my head and that's just, yeah. <sighs> there was a program that came to mind. I don't There's a, a phone company here basically called Bell, Bell Alliance. Mm-hmm. And they have a program, it's called Bell Let's Talk. Mm-hmm. And they have a day every year that they send across these things on Facebook and everywhere else on different social media things about trying to end the stigma of mental health. And it's like, I, I find it. Yeah. A lot of people were backing it when it first started, like they were behind it and agreeing with it. And a lot of people will still like share the things. And I don't know, maybe they're making an impact in like larger cities and stuff, but I'm sorry, but living in the most underfunded province in Canada, I've never once seen it make a difference here. And it just, it frustrates me. I don't know how you would know if it's making a difference, but for me, I think. Right, right. I mean, is there harm in putting the 1-800 number? No. Is there harm in your platitudes? I don't know. What I'll say is this, until you are able and or willing to listen in a certain way, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. mean just passively listen and wait to talk. No. If you, if you can't do that with me or others, like I don't actually give a shit what you're doing to help. I don't think mm-hmm. you're doing what you're doing because that's something that most people outside of a small percentage of people who might have like legitimate neurological condition that doesn't allow them to yeah. use their brain. Fun- you know I mean? There's certain yeah. 
you're just not doing what you can be doing. And what you can be doing is can be so profoundly helpful. Mm. And you're putting a fucking 1-800 number on your Facebook page. Don't fucking talk to me about that. Yeah. Everybody knows about the goddamn 1-800 number line. Google is really fucking powerful. All right. If we have crises and we put in Google suicide crises, I want to kill myself. Guess what's going to pop up everywhere? 1-800 or whatever it is, the equivalent in Canada. Yeah. What we're not getting is people who shut the fuck up and listen. Let's talk about it. Let's not really just, listen. Yeah. Right. And that's, not, yeah. we're not getting that. And you can't replace one with the other. It doesn't mm-hmm. work that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think a thing, another thing is that, I mean, there are times when talking to a complete stranger is a little bit better than talking to someone that I know. Yeah. But there are some times when I just want someone that I know, someone that knows my story. So I don't have to explain my whole entire story to them before I explain what's happening in that moment. I just want someone to listen that knows, you know what I mean? And that's, that's hard. Cause there's just, there's no one. I, I don't have anyone. So. Well, I appreciate you talking with me, especially given you were so close to not. And I do think there will be people who hear this and it will help them. It will for sure help them. That's my hope. Right? Even if one person heard it and just knew that they weren't alone, that would, that would be enough for me. And even if I never knew, you know what I mean? Like if someone just heard it and knew is that's all I, that was my only hope going into this is just someone would hear it and someone would know that they weren't alone and that this, I don't know if there's something, I don't know if it gets better because I I haven't seen it. Some people will tell you that, that it gets better. And that's what a lot of people say is when they've dealt with suicide, that's what they say at the end is it gets better. Well, right. It know. got better for that person. Exactly. Assuming they're being honest, but does that mean it gets better for everyone always? Exactly. Well, we would all love to say yes to that, but we can't. Exactly. We yeah. can't. Well, listen, uh, I, I hate to sound trite or weird. I never know how to end these, but thank, <laughs> I'll say thank you. You're I really welcome. appreciate it. People will hear it and get something from it. I hope your day with your three lovely pets doesn't suck. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I really appreciate you listening. I really did mean that. So. I no, really I appreciate you sharing that with me. Thank you very much. Ashley. Thank you. All right. Take care. Have a good day. Or as best Bye. you can. All right. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Ashley up in New Brunswick. Thank you, Ashley. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com, Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. Let folks know about the podcast if you would. You can share it on social media. And I know I ask a lot. If you listen on Apple, rate and review this podcast. It helps people find it. Really, it helps a lot. And we want more people to find it and hear these stories by these survivors. And that is all for episode number 108. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 